Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Palace Hostel was almost 100 years old. Richard Tempest slept there for less than two hours. I'd only got there that, that afternoon, you know, so from one o'clock in the morning, been there for 10 or, 10 or 11 hours, you know. So, yeah, it's don't know anybody, don't know the layout and stuff because you've not been there long enough to, to sort of find your feet, so... His story is similar to most, waking to the sound of breaking glass, assuming that was just how they rolled in Childers, coming home from a night out at the pub. I remember sort of waking up and just thinking, you know, it's going to stop, and it anyway, basically it didn't. It continued and got more frequent. And looking through the window and seeing flames, basically, and just thinking, you know, hmm, this is not <clears throat> somebody dropping things in the kitchen, you know, this is, this is pretty serious, pretty real. He was upstairs in room 12, sharing with three others that night and chose to follow Peter Jung out the door. Just not knowing how far it was, because you know, I didn't, basically, you know. I mean, Peter was in front and, and you know, there's no way. I sort of knew how far it was, whether it was going to be, you know, three metres or 30 metres. It was just, yeah, so... Do you think Peter... Do you think Peter's role helped you survive? Yeah, very much so, yeah. yeah. I, I've thought of it many times since, you know, had he not gone first, um, then, yeah, I, I, I strongly think if, had I not followed Peter, I know I kept very, very close to him, um, then could have been a different story, mm. yeah. In the days that followed, Richard would learn that one of his roommates didn't survive, 48-year-old Moroccan Moulay Lulawai Kamal. He too had only just arrived at the hostel, was intensely private, and it took years to learn more about his identity. But the circumstances surrounding his death remain a mystery. You know, he had uh, a lot of belongings and money and stuff in his room when he went back in the room. Um, Obviously, yes, it's all rumours and speculation, but, you know, he went back in the room and, you know, fell through the floor um, because he was found in the TV room. We're talking minutes at the most. It's a constant reminder to everyone who was sleeping on the top floor of the building just how close they were to not getting out. The fourth guest in that room was an Indian student named Vishal Tomar. He would later become a central figure in court proceedings the victim of racial abuse and hatred from his disgruntled roommate, the man found guilty of lighting the fire, 37-year-old Robert Paul Long. When Long moved out and Rob Janssen swapped rooms so he could be among his Dutch friends to watch the European football championships, Richard 
and Moulay moved in. Long, Long yeah. didn't particularly enjoy Vishal, did he? No, I think uh, he was a bit racial again uh, towards official. Uh, As I recall, um, I remember one fight, uh, fight, uh, and they were ex- how do you say that, exchanging uh, strong words, <laughs> and um, and it was about uh, a bag of crisps uh, somewhere in the middle of the night. Um, and I just asked them to lower their voices and, or, you know, take it outside. Long arrived in Childers by bus on the 24th of March, almost three months to the day before the hostel fire. But that came to an end on the 14th of June. The hostel operators, Christian Atkinson and John Dobe, supposedly chased him down the main street of Childers by foot over unpaid rent of about $200. The coroner's report documents an FPOS transaction of Long buying a cask of wine from across the road at the Childers Hotel at 1.14 on the afternoon of the fire, about 11 hours before it was lit. His reputation around town wasn't good, regarded as an itinerant loner who appeared to resent the friendships being formed around him and without him. He was a small kind of withdrawn man that had expressed a lot of anger with some of the backpackers, uh, had a foul mouth, and he really was, I remember just hearing the word odd. He was odd. He didn't strike me as threatening. He just struck me as he was a hanger-on, he was a ne'er-do-well sort of thing. You know, he never, he never had two bob to his name. He was just, like I said, always trying to ingratiate himself with people with uh, by just telling the most ridiculous stories and putting up the most ridiculous scenarios about what he'd done and where he'd been in his life and so forth. So he was obviously, you know, just hoping for some acceptance, I think, from from someone. Um, But uh, people just didn't worry. You could see straight through him that he was just a con man and... um, um, But not a big man and, you know, nothing nothing really physically threatening about him at all. Uh, And... You just you just wonder what sends them over the edge. I thought of him like the typical Aussie redneck guy with the long beards, always walking bare feet, always drunk, and a little bit grumpy. Um, so it wasn't someone that I would communicate with. He compensated, seeking attention, telling tall stories and elaborate far-fetched tales to anyone who would listen. He was known to be a bit of a bullshitter, if I can use that word. Uh, he was known to exaggerate. Um, I actually sat next to him at a um, shave recure day, and uh, when he, uh, we were both in barber chairs, and he got shaved, and I got shaved, and then he was telling me about his, you know, he was doing it because his kids had leukaemia and so forth. Well, that was never the case, you know, like it was just total fabrication. That was the sort of man he was. It was a consistent theme from lies about his children dying to being diagnosed with lung cancer and having just months to live. He doubled down with suicide notes, leaving one on the counter of the Federal Hotel across the road. The same night, he was evicted from the hostel. He left another one under the front door of the Backpackers Hostel on the 19th of June. 
he didn't like the owners because they evicted him for non-payment of rent and he went back in there and uh, he copied a set of keys before he handed them in so he had access. And so details of Robert Long were all around uh, through the journalists and the backpackers that he must have set the fire and there were conversations he'd had with people like uh, Keith O'Brien from Wigan that, that he, he uh, hated the backpackers and he, he was going to set the place on fire. I've spoken to him a few times. I'd had a disagreement with him. I think most people in the hostel had. I've said I'm not shy. I do believe you stand up for people when they need help. I always have been. He wasn't a pleasant gentleman at all. You know, he didn't get on with anyone. He was vindictive. He was trying to ingratiate himself, obviously, with backpackers. They weren't having a bar of it. Um, so obviously, and I think obviously the um, the issues he may have had with the owners of the backpacker hostel as well uh, came into play and um, he reacted accordingly. Survivors had all been interviewed by police in the hours following the fire. Rumours were running rife. The rumours immediately started that it was lit and that uh, Robert Long was the one who lit it. I think those rumours immediately came hours after the fire. I don't know who the source was or how the rumour started, but that happened within three, four hours after the fire. At their Saturday morning media conference, with the world's cameras fixed on them, police made their first move. This is the person that we are seeking. Detectives have named 37-year-old Robert Paul Long as a person they want to question. We have a number of unanswered questions and he is the only one that can answer those questions for us. Childers Police Sergeant Jeff Fay was leading the local response. Well, pretty early on in the piece that we, we heard or we started to get some information that it was possibly suspicious and that it was deliberately lit. Can't exactly say where or I got that information from, but people were coming up to me. It's probably backpackers and people who had had um, dealing with the with the hostel. Bong was a resident at the hostel, and there had been something going on in the hostel involving him, and and, and a bit of bad feeling or something there. And and uh, he was nominated very early on in the piece. The police did a press conference and issued a photograph of uh, Robert Long a bearded uh, guy with a suntan who looked like a tramp, and he became Australia's most wanted. So the hunt was on then for Robert Long. For a town trying to come to terms with the enormity of the situation, it did at least help provide some perspective and possible reason. But that was countered with extreme apprehension and concern as the community was put on high alert. I remember people weren't opening their businesses up for fear that they might run into him. People went to ground. No one knew where he was. And if he was capable of lighting that fire, then quite frankly, he was capable of anything. There was fear in the community at that time too. There was someone on, on the run for a crime. And it was the first time in my life I've actively seen elderly and family people locking and shutting windows and doors at night because they were frightened. That was proper anxiety. I mean, we even felt it. And we were warned by the, by the cops 
not to go if you see him and we were part of the the process of looking if you see him call us and we we're given all these numbers and everything and we'd go up to i remember going along the highway and there was a roadblock and there was a cop out with his gun and we were thinking oh god he's here um and this happened pretty quickly didn't it the the, the hunt for for him robert long and i remember after a day or so everyone was really starting to feel you know how tense it was. You've got this story going on in town where they're dealing with huge grief with all these relatives arriving and then you've got this hunt for this man who's dangerous. There's no question he's dangerous and there's no question he'd do anything. And we you know, we thought at the time he'll go out swinging or go out firing or whatever he's going to do, it's not going to be pleasant. And then we run into roadblocks uh, and they don't turn out to be anything. We run into police dog units, um, you know, hunting through the bush, I mean, some of this area is is quite difficult to get through and and to find anyone there. We knew he may have been an experienced bushman as well. So you go, oh, where is he? What's he doing? Um, Are we going to find him? Um, And then after a couple of days, that anxiety only builds. Having been there myself, I can vouch for every single account you've just heard. People were living in genuine fear. There were serious concerns for the public safety which makes what you're about to hear even more chilling. Did you ever bump into Long or cross paths with him? No, no. But the morning of the fire, he was sitting across the road having coffee, watching it all happen. While it was on fire? While it was on fire? Well, while the fire brigade and everything was working, trying to, you know, um, close it all off and the whole area and see if we had to close the shops down either side butcher shop on one side and the super uh, the uh, oh, big department thing on the other side which is Solly's or something or other at the time I think that all had to be closed down and he was sitting across the road watching it all It was the final moment of freedom for the man who would be dubbed Australia's Most Wanted, 24 hours later. Westlead Paul Taylor is currently on the Deputy Commissioner for um, Regional Queensland. Uh, back in the year 2000 and for some time prior to that, I was the uh, inspector or officer in charge of the Special Emergency Response Team, what's commonly referred to as CERT. And uh, the matter that you're inquiring about uh, at that time, I was uh, in charge of CERT. And uh, as a result of a request for us to uh, attend and support uh, uh, the North Coast, uh, we deployed a team or teams to the Childers area. The manhunt was well and truly underway. It was dubbed Operation Birch. A number of assumptions made in regards to the person of interest and his ability or inability to move around the area. So obviously given the nature of the incident that occurred and and as night become day and the communications of what actually had occurred become more widely spread and and, and more known, particularly by locals, obviously there's greater opportunity for sightings. And there were a number of sightings reported to police. The one thing police were certain of, no one in the local area would be working to assist Robert Long. 
it was quite a unique situation in that we had so much support. You know, so, sometimes a lot of those activities that we're involved in, our presence is probably not as, as, as well supported and, and on occasions people don't even know that we're there. But so, so this was quite unique circumstances. They wanted residents to stay out of harm's way, but they needed their eyes and ears to help bring him in for questioning. It was a game of uh, cat and mouse, if I could put it that way, a, a bit of a game of chess where we uh, systematically searched areas closer to the incident site and as the days progressed, our level of comfort that uh, the person wasn't there or suspected they were being there, we were looking at actions to confirm that or not. Gradually moving our way further and further away from where the um, where the incident had occurred. Helicopters searched by air. Every road in and out of Childers was blocked. Every car was checked by police. The breakthrough came five days after the fire. Locals spotted him in bushland in the small town of Howard, 30 kilometres away. And I spotted this man in the double coat with a backpack hiding behind a tree over there. But the way he was running around, you know, and the helicopters about, I thought that there was something suspicious. Well, he just looked a bit sussy. Those interviews, courtesy of Channel 7, they went to air that night with breaking news. But first tonight, we head straight to Mirraborough, where late this afternoon, Australia's most wanted man, Robert Long, was shot by police after he lunged at them with a knife. At every turn, this story had drama, and uh, the arrest was no exception. Word came that Long had been spotted in some cane fields after stealing a couple of farm workers' smoko lunch, and uh, the chase was on with a police dog and a handler. Long, to evade capture, hopped at one point on a cane train that didn't go very far, then made his getaway across the fields and legged it. And remarkably, the first police dog collapsed with exhaustion and had to be withdrawn. Two other officers were nearby and got the call up. The people involved, uh, you know, they, they stepped up and uh, did, did the role that they're trying to do, but uh, under the circumstances, there is... You know, obviously a high level of courage involved, knowing that you're stepping into foreign ground uh, in the the heavy vegetation there, which is not an ideal set of circumstances. That is understating it considerably. I've spoken extensively to the police officer who apprehended Long that afternoon. He chose not to record an interview for this podcast. He's asked not to be named, so I will respect his wishes on that. He'd actually prefer the entire incident doesn't get discussed at all. He doesn't want fame, notoriety, has never pursued gratitude. But he did receive the Queensland Police Service's highest award for bravery for his role in the capture of Robert Long on the 28th of June 2000. And rightly so. I'll leave it to journalist Frank Thorne to explain how it played out. The dog handling sergeant, the bloke called being backed up by Constable cornered Robert Long and he then pulled out a knife willing to take them on and uh, warned him and said drop the knife or I'll let the dog go and when he lunged towards the officer they let Titan go and Titan took him by his arm and um, in the scuffle Long stabbed Titan the police dog 
but he carried on gripping his arm. So called him off and said, stay where you are, drop the knife, drop the knife, and I'll take the dog away. But uh, Long got up and, and did a runner, and the sergeant released Titan again, and they tumbled down the riverbanks, and um, the sergeant went in and went for the knife, which Long was still striking out towards the dog, and he got caught by the blade and, and stabbed in the jaw. So the dog had been stabbed, the officer had been stabbed. In fact, the tip of the knife broke off and was lodged in his jaw. He lost two teeth in the process. They'd been on a break and called to the scene at such short notice. He wasn't armed, but his partner was. The constable who was close behind drew his gun and and, and fired three shots and one of them... uh, hit uh, Long in the arm. Long thinks he's dying, and with the two police officers detaining him, he says the now famous words. He just rolled over and stayed still and said, I'm dying, I started that fire. What the constable did next would help convict Long when he eventually had his day in court almost two years later. One of the key parts of the conviction that's recorded against Long is the account from one of the officers who wrote down what has been described as a confession on a $10 note. How important was that role and, and what can you say about the actions of that officer at that moment? That officer in particular had an investigative background. I think he well and truly understood the value of notes at the time. I don't know that he appreciated that the face in Australian currency probably uh, not the best, but, you know, it just goes to show in that set of circumstances, you know, the professionalism kicked in enough to warrant an individual to to seek whatever he had that he could write on and and make key notes that later would become critical in um, providing the level of evidence to satisfy a a court and a jury as to uh, what was done and what was said. Long was airlifted to hospital. He'd been shot in the shoulder. His arm was grazed from his tussle with Titan. Ironically, such is the nature of regional towns, Long and the police sergeant were being treated in hospital beds in the same ward. You know, it's, it's due to their professionalism and, uh, and their training that perhaps uh, Long didn't sustain um, further injuries or, or in fact, you know, under the circumstances, didn't receive uh, fatal injuries. I do remember there was concern with police officers of vigilantism that they were going to get to him at Marlborough Base Hospital where he'd been taken for treatment after his arrest because there was still this real surge of anger in the community. It didn't take long for word of Long's capture to reach Childers. They would like to string him up against a telegraph pile here and put a little fire in there and, and let him burn slowly. They should have shot the bastard. In the heart, life for life. Just hope that justice comes to him in some sort of way. It's not going to bring our friends back. Yeah. It's not going to change anything. But just but knowing he's caught and knowing that justice, we will hear answers. You know, yeah, has made yeah, it a whole exactly big relief. There was huge relief they'd got him. And we just wanted to know the circumstances in which he was arrested, but also what his story was. But also, I'm guaranteeing you, every local was breathing a lot easier when he was taken into custody. 
the fact that they were able to support each other and support the, the dog in its job and bring along into detention and subsequently allow the investigators to progress with charges and arrests and a successful prosecution, I think is a fantastic team job right across the board. For the first time in five days, there was a slight sense of relief among the survivors who managed to escape the building that Robert Long had set on fire. In other words, the same group of backpackers Robert Long had tried to kill. Do you remember when they caught him? I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we were asked to come back to the community centre. We were briefed about what happened. And I I recall that they told us that he was shot during his arrest and uh, that people were starting to applaud. So, yeah, I think a lot of anger and frustration was projected at him at the moment by all the backpackers, of course, and um, that they uh, were happy and that he was caught. I think that was uh, that's a moment that I recall vividly. Yeah, that was, of course, a big relief. Big relief that justice was done, that he was being sentenced, that he was going to jail. So that was a good thing. What I know is that it said that he couldn't been convicted because of uh, all the deaths. When he was caught, the joy was brilliant, but my anger wasn't just with him. Once we knew that, it was still there with the management of the hostel. Irrelevant, you know, of how the fire started. If one more person could have come out, you know, that's a better situation. If, you know, two people can come out so much better, but that opportunity wasn't there. So, you know, the fact that Robert Long was going to be dealt with, Wendy Corton, you know, I don't think he's the only guilty party here. The fact that the smoke alarms had been turned off will forever underpin this entire saga. Now, as a side note to all of this, you may have noticed that we beeped out the names of the police officers involved in Long's capture, but revealed the identity of the police dog, Titan, who was sadly stabbed in the paw during the altercation. Well, I can tell you, he wasn't always such a public figure. The day after Long's arrest, uh, as he recovered in hospital, it was obvious to a gnarled old tabloid journalist like myself and the Courier Mail that um, the story of Titan the Wonder Dog would make a fantastic story in pictures around the world for papers like the Daily Mirror and, and everywhere else. The story of Titan, a bandaged Titan, the wonder dog uh, who caught the killer of all these backpackers would um, be basically a page one picture and story and great PR for the Queensland police. But to our jaw-dropping astonishment, the Queensland police officially said no because he is a member of the force and Titan cannot be identified which we thought was complete nonsense because an Alsatian is an Alsatian, isn't it? But uh, we were so gobsmacked and such a lost opportunity for great publicity. So all the Courier-Mail could do was use the drawing of an Alsatian and um, do the story that way of uh, Titan's uh, fantastic uh, collar. (laughs) If that's a a bad pun. (laughs) You've got to laugh, right? Unfortunately, after a long and distinguished career with the Special Emergency Response Team, 
Titan passed away a few years ago. As for that $10 note, it remains in the safekeeping of Queensland Police, sealed in a Ziploc sandwich bag. Perhaps one day it will be a headline exhibit in the Police Museum. I'd like to thank the Queensland Police for making the Deputy Commissioner available for interview in this podcast. Also, a big thanks to the Seven Network for access to their archives. This podcast was written and produced by me, Paul Cochran, edited, composed and sound designed by Zoltan Fecho. Thanks to the Bundaberg Regional Council for their support and thanks to you for listening. Be sure to tell your family and friends to tune in. Feel free to share it on your social media feeds. And the best way to make sure you don't miss an episode is to hit subscribe. I hope you can join me for the next episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.